0: This is For Advisors by Advisors. I'm your host, Evan J. Mayer, and today we have a very special guest in Mr. Jacob Turner. You're used to those crowds, right? Like that, the crowds don't bother you anymore.
1: So I got to be honest, Evan, I listened to your podcast and I heard the applause for one of the guests I was listening to and I was like, I'm looking forward to that. So
0: no, excited about the conversation today and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Jacob is a partner and co-founder of Moment Private Wealth and is also a blogger, podcaster, content creator, everything else that we can put in there, he does. Prior to that interesting note, he was a pitcher, ninth overall pick in 2009 MLB draft, played 11 years in MLB and then a couple years in Korea. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. What was it like in Korea?
1: It was a certainly unique life experience. They love baseball in South Korea. And the way I would describe it is for anybody that likes a European soccer or what they call football over there, it's very similar in terms of the crowd dynamics, what the audience is like, which is extremely enjoyable for somebody on the field. The 20,000 seat stadium over there feels much more like a 50,000 seat stadium does here just because of how engaged the fan base is. And were you living in Korea for that two year period? Yeah, so I was there about a year and I was there by myself for about six months. My wife and at the time three young kids came over and lived with me for four months, which was an incredible life experience. The one note I'll make about it is you learn really quickly that we don't need all the comforts that we have in America, but I'm also really grateful of a lot of things that we do have.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. So you retired. How old were you when you officially hung up the cleats? 29. 29. And did you kind of have a segue into financial services? What Tell us a little bit about your history in the business. Why did you get started? How did you get started and, and where you are today?
1: Yeah, I'll give you the, the 90 second version of it. But at 18 years old, I signed a, a Major League Baseball contract that ended up paying me about $7 million. At the time, my mom had a CPA background. My dad owned a small business, so I was always around numbers. But my family had never been exposed to something like that. They never used financial advisors, but at the time, my girlfriend, now my wife, her dad had actually been a financial advisor for a few decades. He was no longer practicing, but he was a partner at a really big financial institution. So he set me up with some folks. I realized through a lot of conversations that like, Hey, I really like this business. I really like understanding personal finance. I was probably the person that read the most personal finance books of any athlete out there and knew when I got done playing, I wanted to do something to try to educate more players around personal finance. I wasn't sure what that avenue was going to be. So when I got done playing, I actually went and worked for a multifamily office, which I had been using my last couple of years as a baseball player to kind of understand, like, I like this idea of me being able to help people, but what does the inside of this business look like? I did that for six months and realized I do like the business, but Really wanted to scratch the entrepreneurial itch. So that led to a starting moment at the beginning of
0: 2021. Did you go back and after that six months go, I would have advised myself differently on some stuff. And maybe I liked their strategies, but at the end of the day, I would have done something a little bit different.
1: Well, I used advisors for, I guess, 11 years when I was playing professional baseball. I fired a couple advisors during that time, not so much because they weren't great human beings. It was just more so that the advice that I was looking for and the things and the needs that I had started to change. And as an 18 year old kid, frankly, I didn't have a ton of needs. Like there was a lot of money there, but there wasn't a ton of complexity going on in terms of what I actually needed. When I got married and I had kids and I was traveling around the country and there was all these other things going on in my life. And as I was learning along the way and understanding like, okay, here's some different things that I should be thinking about but I really don't want them to be on my plate. It led to me ultimately hiring and firing a couple of different folks. And obviously, now that you've been in the business now, how many years have you been in the business now? So, we started at the Moment at the beginning of 2021. We got registered with the SEC or states in April of that year. And I had joined the firm that I was at previous to this essentially during the middle of COVID in 2020. So I'd worked there for about six months. So let's call it the beginning, middle of 2020 was when I actually started
0: in the industry. And that four years now looking back, like being in the industry, why you hired and fired those advisors, does it make sense even more? Or do you kind of a little softer approach and go, now now that I see things in this light, I see it a little differently.
1: Well, I think, no, I don't really see it differently. What I would say, Evan, is, I think there's different service models for different folks out there. And one of my biggest things with the industry as a whole is I think the industry is doing a really good job moving towards more specialized advice, which is what we give at moment where just really going after a certain demographic and saying, we feel like we could serve these people the best. And I think for me as a client sitting on the other side of the table, I saw the value in that. I saw also the downsides of if I had somebody on my team that maybe wasn't an expert in my situation and look, As a professional athlete, as an 18-year-old kid signing for millions of dollars, that's a really unique situation that doesn't happen all the time. But at the same time, when I view that now, I'm always viewing everything that we're doing through the client lens and saying, what was valuable to me then? What's valuable to me now? How can we deliver that value to the end
0: client today? And as far as doors being opened by being in professional sports do you find it easier to kind of get through those doors? And, and when you're talking to these kids, specifically kids that are literally going and getting handed seven figure checks out the door, are you able to relate with them pretty well? And obviously I think you are, but do they find that you're relatable?
1: The story that I have is really unique and it, it certainly allows for me to be able to really empathize with what they're going through and really understand not just the financial complexities and the strategies that I think a lot of advisors do a really good job of but also understand that the human element of when you're walking into that much money, it is a huge blessing, but it's also a huge responsibility. And I know for me, I had a ton of fear of like, I just don't want to be on 30 for 30 broke and feel like I'm going to lose all this. So how can we not only educate them along the way, but make them feel confident every step that we have, every conversation that we have that they can make really good financial decisions.
0: And what are some pitfalls? I mean, you you see some of these documentaries like Ricky Williams was on, documentary about getting scammed. There there, there are other pro athletes that were on these documentaries where they're getting taken advantage of. And when you're watching it on TV as a financial advisor, I'm going to myself, like, how could they get caught doing this? What would be some advice or words of wisdom you would give to other athletes out there as far as what to look for and not to invest in?
1: The biggest thing is just asking questions. One of the biggest things I see is with professional athletes in general, there's typically some level of ego involved because they're elite at something that they do. They have an ability and a confidence level that is relatively rare because to perform in front of 50,000 people, you have to have that ability and belief in yourself. That oftentimes can lead to them being in a meeting and not wanting to ask a question because they don't want to feel stupid. I say that because I sat there and I thought that. I thought, man, like this guy's been saying mutual funds. I have no idea what a mutual fund is but I don't really want to ask what it is because he's been saying it for two years.
0: Competitive advantage. You've been in stadiums where fifty thousand people are cheering for you, and hopefully, you haven't been in too many stadiums where fifty thousand people are booing. <laughs> booing ha, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I have. But which I think happens. Even I mean, speaking, I'm a big Dolphin fan. tyree Hill drops It's a, a, it's a nature way. of the beast, man. You, you, got, you got to boo him occasionally. How are you itching that scratch? Doing what you're doing now? One, are you doing that? Are you still staying involved in sports as far as golf or something else where you can stay competitive? And and if it is in the business that you're staying competitive. What's your end goal? Is it more clients and more clients I bring in? Is it doing better than other financial advisors out there? What pushes you? What wakes you up in the morning?
1: Well, my wife would tell you that I'm extremely competitive. And I think for me, building this business, building moment has been an incredible outlet for me post-sports because it does allow me to keep that drive. And and look, it's not the same adrenaline rush as you get when you walk on the mound in front of 50,000 people. But at the same time, it is extremely rewarding, one First and foremost, being able to help the group of clients that we're able to help, because it's something that I have just a, such a passion around saying that, like, this is, I've walked in your shoes and I know that if we follow these frameworks, like, we can put you in a really good financial situation, especially because the typical client that we're working with, although they're getting a lot of money on the upfront, there's a ton of unknowns on the backside. And this is the one thing that we can control, right? We can control the financial decisions that we make once that money comes in. And then to your second point, like, what am I measuring that on? How am I creating that competitiveness? For me, we are really looking at building an enterprise level firm long-term is what I would say. And I think there's always stuff to do. You've been in this business a lot longer than I have, but the reality is with each new thing that you have, with each new growth opportunity you have, there's not less complexity. There's more complexity and problems that maybe you didn't have six months in. Now you do have and problems that you had six months in now you don't have today, but there's always new challenges, which is the part that I love about the entrepreneurship side and, and building the business.
0: What, and, and this can correlate to a lot of different in, industries. And, and obviously this show is geared around financial advisors. So the the financial advisors that get a client that comes into some large sum of money and let's in, in this day and age, that was when you received that large sum of money, that was well over a decade ago. These clients maybe now are coming in with eight digit checks, 20, $30 million. What should they be discussing with their client? And what should be the first steps in allocation of that money?
1: In terms of what they should be discussing, the most important thing to me, sitting on the other side of the table, sitting here as a advisor today, is ultimately communicating on the upfront what the expectation is. The expectation can be a, it's a broad host of things, right? It could be what you're expecting the potential rate of return to be. It's what you're expecting the potential ups and downs of the portfolio to be. It's all those things that are so important because what people miss, and at least what I missed was when I first invested money, my first investment ever was more than a million dollars, right? Not into one stock, but into this diversified portfolio. And I'll never forget if in the first week, it went down 5%. Okay. Now me and you can sit here and, and think like 5%, that's not a huge swing. Like that's typical market movement. But for me, that's $50,000. And when I open my account, I'm like, I'm down $50,000. And I didn't have clear communication around the fact that like the market is going to go up and down. We are not going to be looking at this thing on a daily basis and that we are playing a game that should be measured in years and decades, not days and weeks. That communication, I think for a client that's coming into a significant amount of money is so important because that although the percentages are the same, the numbers are drastically different. And if that's an entrepreneur that's selling a business, he might've had a million dollars invested. His net worth on paper didn't actually change Maybe it was 20 million the whole time, but now that he got 20 million of liquid assets and he can see the fluctuation on a daily basis, it becomes real.
0: Yeah. And I think it's funny as you're saying that I'm correlating that to anybody. Matter of fact, we look at it, we look at things on a percentage basis in our business and we look at 5% as a 5% drop. And I think the, the one thing that we're lacking a lot of and whether it's a professional athlete that just got a big check or, Somebody that just sold their business, or somebody that just saved a bunch of money. Fifty thousand dollars is fifty thousand dollars, and seeing that drop and not educating the client per se on the flows of how the stock market or markets work in general is huge. Talk about uh, private investments. That's where you tend to see things get burned. As far as for these athletes that have been hurt in 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 the past, specifically, the shows always are targeting these private investments that happen. You're a registered RIA, you obviously invest in a lot of public market stuff. What's advice on the investments that are not SEC regulated?
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: And so used to
1: having everything in front of them right away that we forget that innovation just takes time. I I myself, I get frustrated too. Why? And you know this is being one of my best friends is, hey, I talk to you all the time. Hey, man, I'm frustrated in the fact that I can't, seem
0: to just get there in Mm -hmm. the next day. But that's just not how these things work, right? Innovation needs to be planned out. It needs to be very methodical. And then when it finally hits, that's when it seems like to everyone else that it it sort of just came out of
1: nowhere. But to you, you know the amount of dedication that it took over that time. Yeah, one of the issues that I think athletes run into is we see publicize things that lebron james or steph curry or kevin Durant are doing folks that have hundreds of millions of dollars and so much off the field income coming into them that they built this brand that's going to continue to sustain their income in the future and then you have an athlete that makes five to twenty million dollars that's really not in that same situation where first and foremost my conversation always says like let's fill up the other two buckets. And the way that we describe it is bucket one is the war chest. Bucket two is the core portfolio and bucket three is the aspirational strategy. And when I think about private investments, it's ultimately in the aspirational strategy. If we filled up enough in buckets one and two to sustain our lifestyle and we feel confident and comfortable in potential private deals that come in, I think it's worth exploring that. But what I always tell athletes, and I think this is true for anybody one thing that I've thought about with private investments, even for myself, I've always thought about first and foremost, I want it to be a good potential financial investment, right? Is the risk return ratio of this a good investment? If I'm taking on more risk, am I going to potentially earn a significant amount of return? That's worth doing that. But secondarily, are there additional things that that private investment allows me to get by investing the capital? And typically for me, that looks like maybe it's new relationships Maybe it's access to new people that I didn't have access to. And I think for an athlete, if you can combine those two things in a private deal, you can ultimately win because the reality is if the financial component doesn't hit exactly the way you want, and maybe the return isn't quite where you want it to be, you also got this non-monetary benefit that could potentially vault you to something else that you want to do next.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And case in point, when you're mentioning LeBron James or people that are at that level, of money a lot of times they're not necessarily putting a ton of their own money into those things they're really getting investments by using their likeness right yeah and, great and, point yeah and, and so so the risk reward profile there is a lot, obviously a lot less risky talk about managing money from what we're looking at your ADV it looks like you like to use ETFs and models things along those lines are you the ones kind of picking and choosing those strategies are they thematic or are they very passive are you kind of sticking to more passive type strategies
1: Yeah. So our investment philosophy as a whole, I would say would be, if you looked at the two camps, active versus passive is much more tilted towards the passive strategy. We're big believers in the famine French model, dimensional advances. And I would say for us, we're really focusing on saying what are the most tax efficient investment vehicles that we can have? And the reason for that being is I would say 90 plus percent of our clients' money is going to be invested in taxable accounts, right? We're not typically working with the average retiree where they've saved money in their 401k and they rolled it into their IRA, or they have significant savings in some other sort of tax deferred retirement account. Most of our clients are having a significant money in taxable portfolios. So we're saying, how can we manage those in a way that we can continue to compound this money for a really long period of time? Number one, stay in the game. And two, as we stay in the game, make sure that we're being really tax efficient as we're compounding it.
0: So you're using dfa models at this point or creating your own dfa models
1: yeah so dfa is one of our what's i would say one of our main partners we don't use dfa models so to speak as i would say but it's a, a collection of dfa funds Advantis, vanguard and a few other asset management firms
0: and and i noticed you custody at, at fidelity and obviously it, it seems to be easier initially to kind of custody at one place have you looked at other custody firms and have you started to Consider diversifying who you're custodying the assets with? We have. So we actually use TD Ameritrade last year
1: for a small blip in time before they ended up merging with Schwab. And I think for us, it's nice to have everything in one place, as I'm sure just from a trading perspective, even, and just from a money management perspective, it's easy to be able to log into one place. I do think it's interesting too, to see some of the different options that are out there. Altruist has been making a little bit bigger of a splash in terms of actually getting more and more assets onto their platform and trying to make it easier for advisors to be able to do things. One thing I think with some of the more, the bigger players in the space of Schwab, of Fidelity, some of the stuff is still a little bit cumbersome in in terms of paperwork or some of the optionality that they have. One of the things that we look to do a lot is solo 401ks and solo 401ks at Fidelity are not the easiest thing in the world. So starting to branch out dependent upon
0: how the business is taking you to
1: Yeah, I think ultimately, like any business, right, you're trying to solve clients needs in the most efficient manner. So as needs come up, what's the easiest way that we can solve those? If those needs keep coming up? What's the best way that we can solve those in an efficient manner long term?
0: You're hosting a podcast, a fairly new podcast called The Long Game. You started that with another advisor who owns another firm. Funny enough, I did a podcast with him two days ago. And I didn't know that until right before I hopped on the call with you, which is kind of interesting. But... The interesting thing is, and I never asked him this question, but you guys are operating two different firms. I'm guessing you have two different views on kind of how you might manage money or or, or how you may look at money. When you created the show and kind of decided to go forward with the show, was there thoughts of like, why am I going to do this with somebody that's an advisor that's not, you know, part of my team or with my team? Has there been thoughts around that conversation and kind of tell us how this podcast got started and why?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. When I think about the, all the growth I've had in this industry, I've literally learned almost everything I know from a business perspective inside the wealth management industry, specifically from other advisors, um, from people being on shows like this, from people being on Kitsis' podcast, just being a sponge and trying to learn that. And through some of those conversations, became good friends with Thomas Kopelman, who I host the co-host, The Long Game with. He runs a company called All Street Wealth. And the way that I view it is ultimately and we both work with younger entrepreneurs, right? But the reality is we're not a fit for everybody. Their firm's not a fit for everybody. And I think there's so much room out there for really good financial advice. And one thing that I still see is while financial advice is getting better, I think there's so much room for advisors to continue to improve. And for Thomas and I, we've become really good friends and he's somebody that helps push me in my business and I hope I'm
0: able to do the same for him. Excellent. Makes a lot of sense and you're right. I mean, I've never been the kind of person, well, obviously I'm hosting a show teaching other financial advisors where I thought that competitiveness that I may have with other advisors and I think there's I think we all have to find a way to scratch that itch as they say and, and be competitive, but never be competitive to a point of not learning and not understanding how other people do things, which makes a lot of sense. Social media. You're big in social media, right? I'm very small in social media. Very, barely don't do a whole lot of stuff in it because number one just don't really understand the space and how it works that well. And two, uh, I've been doing this for a long time. So my practice is a little bit different. Are you finding a lot of business coming from this directly? Obviously, you have a past and and a history where people may know you already. Are you finding that social media is an easier way to engage with people? And are you seeing referrals that are coming directly from your social media uh, presence?
1: Yeah, so I'll kind of answer this by explaining the social media as a whole, because I think it's really helpful for advisors to hear. When I got done playing baseball, I essentially had no social media. So I had no presence on social media. I'm not a quote unquote social media guy. When I was playing, I just didn't really want to share anything. When I got done playing, one of the biggest challenges for athletes specifically, there's a lot of athletes that transition into some role around wealth management, right? Whether they're selling insurance or whether they're advising clients or whatever it may be. And one of the biggest issues that they typically run into is they're viewed as a baseball player and they're viewed that like, maybe they have a a contact list that's really good, but are they actually an expert? Do they actually know what they're talking about? If I was going to actually give them my money, would I trust them? And for me, I always felt like I had this really unique experience. And also during that experience, I was learning the entire time. I wanted to be able to show that experience, not just tell a client that like, Hey, I think I could really help you, but really show them, here's how I could help you. And that came from a lot of the conversations that I had with different financial advisors. When I hired financial advisors, I can remember going to meetings, leaving the meeting, thinking, I really like that guy. They have a really fancy conference room or whatever it may be, but they kind of all sound the same. So how do I know which one I should work with over the other one? Because frankly, I like them all, right? I have three choices and they all sound great. And I think social media is a place for you to really, one, show your expertise, Two, I think it's allow you to show your personality because one thing I've learned in this business is like, ultimately you attract people that are similar to you. And social media is a way for me to be able to add a voice behind the strategies I'm talking about. So if I'm talking about a tax planning strategy, I'm able to share my own personal experiences going through it and what that meant for me in my own life. So that was the journey into social media and to answer your actual question we see the large majority of our new prospects and our new business come from social media. What I will tell folks that are listening though, is the reality is it's a lot of work and we've put in a lot of work over a pretty long period of time. Now I've essentially been posting on social media every single day for almost two years and I've continued to try to find ways to get better. And it's become a real focal point for me and it certainly works now. What I would tell you is anybody listening to this is anything works. If you want it to cold call in 2024, it works. You just got to do it more often than the next guy. If you want to post on social media, it could work, but I think advisors can fall into the trap of playing office on social media where they want to just be known. And the goal is ultimately to like show your expertise, but like, if you're not building your business on there, is it really worthwhile for you to be on there, which I would just caution people. Because there are people that are having success. We are having success with it, but it is not
0: right for everybody. Yeah, I concur. I think I, I see some people do a post up there and uh, the activity looks extremely low. And I think if you, the proof's in the pudding, are you actually putting out good content? And is that content engaging with others, which makes a lot of sense. Last question, NIL, this is new. What are your thoughts on it? And, and have you found ways to start to help monetize that?
1: Yeah. So NIL stands for name image likeness. It allows essentially college and high school athletes to get paid for their brand off the field, essentially. So I love it. I love the idea that athletes are able to monetize their brand because the reality is before NIL, there was a lot of guys that would go to college. They'd be on ESPN on Saturday night. We'd all be watching the college football game. And that might be the most exposure and the most fandom they've ever had and ever will have, because maybe they go to the NFL and they are a backup for one year and then you never hear their name again. So I think it's awesome that guys are able to get compensated for it. There's a lot of one, I think, opportunity for guys to really make really good financial decisions on the upfront, whether it's tax planning with the 1099 income that comes in or making those just initial contributions to retirement accounts where they're starting to build the muscle of saving money. In addition to that, as an 18 to 21-year-old kid, you have an incredible time frame to let that money continue to compound. So there's tons of opportunities there.
0: Excellent. Well, um, looking forward to seeing you grow again. I just kind of got wind of, of who you are, and it's interesting. You've really come onto the scene uh, quickly and and fast. So congratulations on all your success. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, um, Jacob, how's a good way to reach you?
1: Yeah, the best way is probably on social media. I post every day on Twitter, LinkedIn youtube and instagram you can also find our website at momentprivatewealth.com and which
0: of those uh, platforms is your favorite right now
1: yeah i think there's an amazing community of people on twitter and if you find the right group of people on twitter i've learned so much in entrepreneurship in general
0: on twitter so i think that's where i find the most doers excellent awesome we'll find jacob he's everywhere and thanks again for joining us for those out there hope you enjoyed today's show and we'll see you on the next one thanks so much